welcome back to our latest installment of the Rumcast. We are the podcast that explores all things rum related with the people who love and shape it. My name is John Gulla, and I'm but a meager half of the two hosts that make up this here podcast, with the other half being, of course, the infamous Will Hookinga. And Will, what's going on with you lately, and how's uh, the rum life? Hey, John. Uh, I, you just hit me with a, a, a bunch of vocabulary words that, that are... <laughs> bouncing around in my head right now do you know what i think of anytime i hear the word meager you use the word meager to describe yourself do you know what i i can never not think of when i hear the word meager i don't i'm trying to rhyme it meager eager beaver no so i don't know anyone who was a child of the 90s or and or slash uh, early 2000s grew up with a game on the computer called oregon trail of course. Did you did you play this game growing Heck up? Heck yes, man. Of course I did. I died of dysentery many times, Will. <laughs> so, many times. So you have to set your, your wagon party's rations, essentially. And That's one of I the think. options is a meager diet. <laughs> meager rations. Yeah. And so I can't hear the word meager without thinking about <laughs> my, my poor little wagon party having to ration their food when they're, when they're out of you know deer and buffalo and, and rabbit and squirrel meat. That's awesome. I wonder if they could supplement with some rum. That might have been <laughs> yeah. helpful. I wonder I wonder if there was any rum on the Oregon Trail. Hmm. Any historians out there? Yeah. yeah well, if, if there are any historians out there, send us an email and, and give us some some info on the historical accuracy of the idea that maybe some some travelers had rum on the Oregon Trail. That's but right. anyway, knowledge on us. Yeah. Now that we've we've taken a little detour there, you know, I, I was thinking today. You know, what one of my favorite questions is to ask people who like rum um what's your favorite rum that's a good one but yeah one that i think is is often a little more useful than that particularly mm -hmm. if you're looking for recommendations is what are you buying because mm. when you ask someone what they're buying it's a little bit of a different kind of question than asking them like hey what's something good you had recently you know you get yeah. kind of a sense of what's catching their eye or maybe something that really impressed them, or maybe a go-to bottle, something that they always keep in stock. So mm -hmm. I thought it could be a fun little segment, sort of a counterpart. We have another little segment that we do sometimes called Rerums, where we talk, yes. where we revisit rums from the past and see if our impressions of them have shifted at all. I thought a nice little counterpart to that would be, what are you buying? Where we, you know, talk about, or one of us talks about a recent purchase and sort of what went into the purchase, why we decided to get it, what we think about it, that kind of thing. So yeah. if you'll indulge me, I, I can kick us off on our first edition of this, this fledgling rum segment. What are you buying? I love it. I love it. It's like we're, we're doing... Ghosts of Rum Past, and now we can do Ghosts of Rum Future, almost. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so uh, hit, hit me with it, uh, the inaugural edition here. What is it? What yeah. are you buying, Will? So my most recent rum purchase was Appleton 15. And ah. I know, you know, this is a rum podcast. Maybe people were expecting a little bit more of a deeper cut than, you know, something as popular as, as Appleton. But yeah. that's part of why I wanted to talk about this. Um, Cheryl Crow says the first cut is the deepest. So. <laughs> she, she does. <laughs> there <yeah>. you go. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, Appleton has made a deep cut on my rum life. You know, it's been nice. there since the beginning. And mm. I think, first of all, part of the reason why... If Appleton releases something and it's under $100, there's a good chance I'm just going to buy it no matter what. Part of the reason for that is, wow. like, I've never really had anything from Appleton that I thought was bad. Mm -hmm. um, 
second of all, I think if we're talking about brands that shape broad perceptions of the rum mm-hmm. category, Appleton has to be way up there because they have the the scale, the distribution, the awareness. Like if they put something out, a lot of people are going to end up tasting it. Right. And, you know, so if they're if they're releasing something new, just sign me up. I want to know what, what it's all about because it's probably going to make an impression on a lot of people. So Appleton 15 kind of joined the, the flagship lineup, uh, that app, the core range of Appleton. They've got the signature, they have the eight year, they have the 12 year, mm-hmm. they have the 21. Now they have the, right. the 15 joining in there, sliding, kind of slid it in sliding there exactly right in between thinking. the 12 yep. and the 21. Yep. And so that, that was kind of one of the questions for me that I really wanted to answer picking up this bottle was, you know, where is this going to end up sitting on the spectrum for me between Appleton Mm -hmm. 12 and Appleton 21? I think Appleton 12 is kind of seen as like if someone is coming up to you asking for a recommendation for something that they can sip neat as an introduction into rum, it's one of the most common recommended rums. Like we've been over this. This isn't new territory we're covering. Right. Whereas Apple Twenty One, Appleton Twenty One is, uh, it's a lot farther uh, on the spectrum, at least in terms of cost. Like I looked up the right. prices right now, Appleton Twelve on TotalWine.com is forty two dollars. Appleton Twenty One is one hundred and forty one dollars. Yeah, pretty Total big Wine. leap. So yeah, yeah it's a mm-hmm. pretty big leap. Appleton mm-hmm. Fifteen is coming in between those, but still closer to the Appleton Twelve side of things mm-hmm. at sixty six dollars. Mm-hmm. So. What I was kind of approaching this with was, where will this end up sitting in terms of my purchasing decisions going forward? Is this going to make me buy Appleton 12 less? Does this mean I'm probably not going to pick up another bottle of Appleton 21 at any point in the future? Or are Mm -hmm. they each going to have their own little use case? And I think where I've fallen after several rounds of, you know, sitting back and, and tasting this rum is, I can confidently say for me, well... I'll preface this. I'm not ready to make the call yet on 12 versus 15 and where those sit because I haven't had a bottle of 12 on hand for a couple of months. So I haven't been able to do the side by side yet, Uh, but I do still have some of a bottle of 21 sitting around and I'm ready to make the call on that. And price or no price, I want the 15. And hear hear me out because because I'm not saying 21 isn't good. It is good. I enjoy it. But for me and what I'm looking for, that rum has always had... The, the oak influence is super mm-hmm. strong in it. Right. And I'm not one to shy away from an, an oaky rum. That's not an automatic turnoff or something, but it's just, mm-hmm. it's kind of always like pushed it a little bit for me in terms of the balance of the oak with everything else. Yeah. The 15 for me is really in that sweet spot of what I want from that core range of Appleton rums in terms of the balance between the oak and the fruits and the molasses and the kind of, you know, sweet shop type notes you get from their rums. Um, And then when you factor in the cost on top of that and the fact that they're both 43% ABV, it's not like the 21 is cask strength or something like that. I mean, you're talking about a price leap of 66 bucks, give or take, to 140 bucks, give or take. So, mm-hmm. huge leap. And for me, I, I really like the, the job I'm hiring Appleton 21 for when I buy it is the same job <laughs> that I'm hiring Appleton 15 for when I buy it. So, huh. it's something I'm going to sip when I want something tasty, laid back, not yeah. super challenging, and 
God, that sounds so so pretentious when I say like not challenging, <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? Like um, I do. It, it a does have some rum. complexity mm-hmm. to it, but it's mm-hmm. not one of those rums where it's like um, yeah. it's not an acquired taste kind of rum. Right. It, it doesn't have any uh, very unusual or proof, offbeat right? kind of notes. That yeah, it's not super mm-hmm. high proof, so it's yep. really easy to just knock back, but still just really tasty. And so for me, that's where I'm looking at appleton 15 right now in that range and yeah um i don't know i thought if anyone else out there is is looking at that and wondering they should get it i'm just trying to provide my perspective and hopefully you can take that and enter it into your own little rum purchasing calculus and decide if it's if it's something you want to seek out and try but um i'm i'm really enjoying it right now yeah two points i kind of want to talk about with what you're saying there and, and engage with is the first is so i have tried the 15 actually and mm-hmm. i quite enjoyed it as well there you uh, go. In fact, I, but differently than you, whereas you're saying, hey, the 15 kind of, you, you prefer it to the 21 in the sense of if you had to buy one, you're going to buy the 15. It's mm-hmm. kind of where I think you're landing. I kind of want both in my bar. I want the 15 and the 21, but I I like the oak. And, and remember, y- you mix a lot more than I do. I'm, I'm definitely more of a sipper and want the ranges of sipping. And I would actually drop the 12. I would take the 15 and the 21 and drop the 12 okay. off of my menu. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, so here's the thing is, again, I need to get a bottle of 12 because I haven't had it in a while. And yeah, I yeah. brought this rum up before because I bought the 8 when it came. The 8 yeah. was kind of like reformulated recently. Right, right. And... I enjoyed the eight so much that I was already kind of thinking like this might be a go-to for me over the 12 because to me it sits in that spot of where I like it on its own, but I also don't feel guilty throwing it in a cocktail. Um, I'm probably not going to be throwing the 15 into any cocktails. And I've actually been, um, I don't know, this might be a little bit of a confession. I have not been making very many cocktails at all recently. Um, It's, you know, when I want something, I'm just, I'm just going you know, straight to coming to the dark straight side. To rum. And I, I mean, I've always been there. Like it's, it's all rum has always been something I've primarily yeah. consumed on its own, but I, you know, I enjoyed making cocktails as a hobby. It's just kind of, it's, it's gone a little, it's trending downwards right now. Um, yeah. I don't know why. Maybe I should explore that uh, huh. at a different time and place. But that's that's interesting. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm wondering if the 12 is going to start getting squeezed out of my bar as well. And I think the only thing with the 21 is if I'm going to spend that much money on rum, there are just other rums I would much rather spend it on. Right, um, right. Than, that makes sense. Than too, the yeah. 21. So that that's it, why, for me, I see it kind of getting, getting squeezed out of place in my mm-hmm. home bar. I, I see your point there, for sure. The other thing I was going to ask you about the 15 is, had you tried the old 15? By old 15, do you mean the one that was released in Canada? Yes, I, I do. Ha- I have not, no. Okay, not, neither have I. And we did, uh, the Florida Rum Society did an event a few months ago where we talked with Joy about this, and they mentioned it's the same blend. That's so, that's what I've heard from her as well, yeah. Yeah, that, that it was the same blend, that nothing was different, but I do know that some people in Canada really do feel differently about it. Interesting. And they feel like it's slightly different. And we know that drift happens and things of that, you know, we've talked about that with people before as well. Um, but I, I found it interesting, so I was just curious to see if you had tried the quote-unquote old blend i haven't uh, i well. haven't no maybe I, we'll have yeah. to do a little rum cast investigates on that one <laughs> <laughs> uh sounds like a challenge yeah i'll take it anyway so so that's that's what i've bought recently um maybe we'll do this again uh, at, at a later date but i understand that you have a re-rum to discuss with us before we get to our interview on this episode 
Yes, you do understand correctly, and I'm uh, interested to talk about it, actually. So, uh, as you mentioned, the re-rum, the idea behind this is that we're revisiting an, a rum that we have had in our bar for a while, but really haven't engaged with in a while. Mm-hmm. And we know that sometimes when you come back to things, they can change, they can be different. Uh, you might have a better experience, you might have a less less good experience. So, I came back to this rum specifically because of our interview today. So, I'll mention that at the outset. It has a connection to that. Uh, and, and I was interested because it's been sitting in the back of my bar forever. Kind of similar, Will, in a funny way to what you just said. So, I mentioned that I don't do as much mixing. I'm, I'm really more of a neat consumer of rum more than anything. Well, I had bought this bottle because it just seemed interesting. I had heard such good things about it, but knowing kind of it's a mixer usually to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is Plantation's OFTD. Oh, okay. Which is the yeah, old-fashioned traditional dark. And, That's one uh, thing yeah. it stands for. Uh, I, <laughs> I was going to say there's many others, isn't there? <laughs> Old fart, that's delicious. How about that one? But it's so 69% ABV as an overproof. Yep. It's, it's up there. And uh, so it's it's really, I, I got it the first time and tried it as an overproof and even sipped it neat or tried to sip it neat. Sure. It, it's a who bit hasn't? hot for that. Yeah. Well, so there's a lot of people out there who are like, yeah, it's great. Go for it. And, and I heard some pretty good feedback with that. I have to say my experience with it is that I don't think for me, this is a neat sipper. Sure. It just it it runs a little hot uh, as mentioned, which you know to be expected at sixty nine percent. By the way, did you know that uh, sixty nine is one of the only numbers that you cannot bid or bet in Jeopardy? Really, uh, as an aside, what, what like yes. you can't even put it at the end? Like you can't even nope, say like a thousand sixty nine against the rule. Just like because that, of like six 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 and sixty nine are two of the numbers you can't actually <laughs> do. Amazing. <laughs> um, I actually anyway. watched Jeopardy from time to time, and I was so happy when that guy who had been on Forever Lost recently, because I, I really <laughs> was not a fan of watching him on there. The guy from Miami beat him, I think. Uh, was he from Coral Miami? Gables. Yeah, Coral Gables. Okay, yeah. nice. Shout out that yeah. guy. I think he go. just lost on the most recent episode, though. But yeah, yeah. And so, that's so, that's interesting. So, so OFTD to clarify, that's uh, a, a blend of Barbados, Jamaica, and, and Guyana, Guyana. Correct. Yep. Okay, so yes. the Barbados component then is coming from West Indies Rum West Distillery, Indies. which exactly. is uh, where the the subject of the interview on this episode is coming from. I, w- I won't transition to that just yet, but that that's a rum I have not visited in a while either, probably because. Like I said, I haven't been making cocktails very much recently, and so it's just mm-hmm. kind of back there in the bar. And I, I do, I have talked to people who do, you know, enjoy a pour of that on its own, and I've had it on its own, and um, it's it's good. It's it's, pro- it's probably not something I reach for for that purpose at this point, just because I have other options at home. Yeah. For, for mm-hmm. again, like I was talking about rums for certain jobs, I have other rums for that job that I would yeah. <laughs> prefer yeah. a little bit. But I think part of that is also like availability for some people. Like that's a pretty widely distributed rum, mm-hmm. and it's well, at, and and it's at a higher proof. So if you want to sip something that's that's higher proof. And you don't have a ton of options in your area, I can or a see ton why of money, it, or it, yeah, it's affordable it, too. It's so very affordable for what it is. So and I it could is see high that quality be- for that price. Yeah. yeah, I could see it becoming like a go-to kind of workhorse. Just to just pour yourself a glass, and on a weeknight, you just want to sit back and uh, relax. Some people probably think it sounds insane to sit back and relax with a sixty-nine percent ABV rum, but you know, yeah. um, it's well, it's it's got great flavor to it. It, it really does. It's an intense flavor, uh, and, and it's, it's not got, sweetened. It, no, it's not. No, no sweetening. It's not a sweet rum. Uh, it does have sweet notes to it. Sure. And I think especially on the nose. So I guess when coming back to it now is where I was at today and coming back to it, uh, I was thinking, you know, first thing is 
I get a lot more Guyana out of it than I remember. Mm, and that's probably indicative of my growth overall in just experiencing rums, sure. right? Over time. Is you can I can pick out the Jamaica, I can pick out the Barbados, but I get a hefty amount of Guyana out of uh-huh. this, uh, which I found to be interesting because I don't remember that last time. And so that was an interesting kind of thing to me coming back to it. And then the other is, you know, I can now see how this is really a great bottle to have in a bar to do, like you, you mentioned, the job that it does. Uh-huh. Um, I, I would consider this for that job just because I think for, for what it does, what it brings to the table, the intensity of the flavor there for, you know, something like a, a, even a Cuba Libre, a rum and Coke. This oh, would be yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, for um, sure. So Throw it in know, some ginger and- beer. Exactly. All of that would be, that's where this rum sits for me. And it is a really, really nice one to pick out uh, once in a while. So yeah, I I just, I I wanted to come back to it for that reason and remembering that, hey, that's one of those that uh, I think uh, didn't get enough play the first time around for me that I was kind of, I I wouldn't say off put was the right word when I experienced it the first time, but just like, I was not ready yet to approach all it had to offer. Yeah. Especially just as a neat sipper. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the job that it's primarily for is not something that you were looking to hire uh, at the time so (laughs) Um, at the risk of stretching the metaphor too yeah Um, this is such a nerdy way to think about this um (laughs) anyway that very appropriate pick for today's interview we interviewed don ben for this episode he is the master distiller at west indies rum distillery in barbados and I th- a couple of reasons that we wanted to talk to Don, I think, number one, he's been in the rum industry since 1998, I believe. So for me, it's always interesting to get someone's perspective who's just been in it for so long because it's changed so much over that time. And just kind of hearing his story and progression, I thought was really interesting. And uh, the second reason being that West Indies history goes back a really long time in Barbados. They have a, I was really eager to talk to Don about kind of the plethora of interesting stills, both functioning and non-functioning that they have there. And we got, uh, we got some interesting tidbits on, uh, on the Rockley still that, uh, I, I, you know, rum aficionados ears will perk up when they hear that. And if you're unfamiliar with it, we'll go into a little bit of its significance in the episode, but, um, yeah, so I think this was really all about, you know, Don and also a little bit, you know, the background with West Indies Rum Distillery and the preferred pronunciation for the acronym WIRD, um, which I don't want to say right now. I just wanted people, you can wait and hear that part of the conversation, but I, I wanted to get the final word on how to pronounce uh, what I thought was word, but, <laughs> but people have different opinions. You thought on, it was word? So. Weird. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I was always That's a weird. word. I was always a word guy. So anyway, yeah. What about you? Anything to add before we throw it over? The only thing I want to add is that I was super excited to talk to Don because I had had the chance to meet him at a rum festival prior, and he struck me as one of the the most positive individuals and just a really genuine guy mm. to talk to, always smiling, always happy, and he carried that through uh, in this interview as well, in, in addition to being informative, but really great to always talk to people that, that have that and carry that with them and, and just genuinely enjoy what they do. Definitely. So, uh, let's get to it and, and uh, let uh, everybody hear. All right.
are here with Don Ben, the master distiller at West Indies Rum Distillery in Barbados, where for a few decades now, he's been making rum that's gone into many different brands you've probably seen and tasted before. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of those and more today. But before we get into that, uh, thanks thanks for being here. I know you've been really busy lately, I think installing a new still, doing some traveling. So I know you've got a lot going on down there. Yeah. Hi, Will and John. Yeah, it's, it's been busy. I'm, and no, I can't be in Barbados and away at the same time. So even though I was traveling, there is a great team here in Barbados who kept that installation going. And hopefully by the middle of November, we'll be able to to get it up and running. Um, it's not really a new still, but uh, a new column, and it will be integrated in, into one of the existing stills. But we are really excited to, to see what that's going to produce for us. Awesome. Yeah, well, I know we're, we're certainly going to get into some of the different stills that you guys have down there a bit later in the conversation, because um, there's a lot of cool stuff there. But before, before we get into all that, I'd really love to talk a little bit just about you and your background in rum. It's always so interesting for us and listeners to kind of get to hear how you got into the whole world of rum in the first place. So so what was it that, that got you started from a professional interest level in rum? Uh, you know, was it something you wanted to do for a long time? Did you have a passion for rum before going into the industry? What, what was that journey kind of been like for you? Oh, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Uh, it's actually one I can can speak on for for a long time because <laughs> it's probably not what most people imagine it, it how it started. Uh, let's just say in Barbados, growing up, um, and I'm, I mean, I, I reveal my age. I'm, I'm sort of like mid forties, so it's, I, I I basically started this job very early on in my my work life. I would have guessed um, it's much younger than that. Yeah. I really know. <laughs> well, Barbados son is nice. Um, <laughs> I'll send an extra bottle of rum. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> you saw right through me. Right. But um, yeah, growing up as as a schoolboy, you know, in, in Barbados society, I'd be honest with you, rum was not something that you aspired to be involved oh, with very much. Um, mm. And that's generally because, you know, you, we have a, a culture where, you know, it's very community and village oriented at that time and still so to some degree. So you go by what's called a rum shop and you see guys and ladies sometimes, but many guys there early in the day and all times of the day and they're not really sober. Gotcha. So your parents always caution you, um, avoid rum. What You don't want to become like that. Now, they could have been drinking whiskey for all of you. <laughs> really? <laughs> it was really a case of rum didn't always have a pride of place. Um, people knew it, it was important for us to produce rum, but it wasn't something that, that they encouraged their children to be, to grow up aspiring to a career. So when I met through school, no one really was thinking, okay, you're going to be educated, you're going to learn maybe some technical field, and then you're going to end up with a rum, in a rum distillery. You just knew there were brands of rum, and that was it. Right. When I left school, I I really was a very technically oriented person. You know, I love physics and mathematics, that type of thing. I love tinkering with with um, engines or any little piece of equipment, toys that would dismantle and try to put them back together again. So my studies were based on that. And when I finished the studies, it was a case of, well, okay, uh, what's next to me? So obviously I wanted to come back to Barbados to work, but I came back thinking, well, let's find out what the opportunities are. So I didn't leave Barbados thinking I was going to end up back at a rum distillery. 
Pardon me if you if you mentioned this, but where were you studying? Okay, right. So my early schooling all in Barbados, and my university education was in um, Birmingham, England. Oh, okay, wow. Um, cool. I spent spent four years there, and and thankfully that was that was funded by the Barbados government. So and one of the requirements of that funding was to either return the payment if you couldn't return to Barbados to work, mm-hmm. or you would invest in that the same length of time you studied for, you could return to Barbados and put in that same amount of time working in the country. So it really is about an investment in, in the education uh, of the population. And they wanted to, for you to come back and help the country to continue on its growth path. So I chose to come back. And there weren't many opportunities because we're really not a big industrial um, country. You know, mm-hmm. Service-oriented tourism is a big, well, the major industry in Barbados. You have financial services. So manufacturing and, and heavy industry not really that big. So there were only a few places that gave me that opportunity and invariably it came down to two choices. <laughs> and many people, when I say this, don't want to believe this. It came down to a choice between working at a rum distillery and working for the water company. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so two, two essential liquids of life then that you had to choose right, between. You can, you can guess which one my, my parents at the time were advising <laughs> me to work with. <laughs> Please go into water. Yeah. And like any, and like any good son, I took the advice on board and said, okay, I'll do the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so that, that's pretty much how I ended up. In, in the rum distillery here in Barbados, uh, again, not thinking when I was doing my studies, it wasn't carefully planned that that was going to be the end position. And even then it was, well, okay, this could be a stepping stone into who knows what, let's see where it right. goes. Don't put any definitive time frame. but if you told me when I started, it was going to be 20 plus years, I would have said, no, nah, I doubt it. The passion grew over time and very quickly it grew. What what was it kind of was it just from being involved in it so closely and learning more about it? Was it kind of like a slow buildup of developing a passion for rum or, or was there that, you know, kind of one aha epiphany moment. aha yeah. moment? Yeah. How did oh, that happen so for, for you? me? It came, as I said, very technically minded for me. And then I started and, and when you come into a rum distillery, at least like this one, your eyes open really wide. It's like, wow, there's so much here I can get hands on with. That was, that was what you were encouraged to do. It's not an office job. It's not a sit down behind a desk. I mean, there were hardly any computers going around then. If you imagine now, we have well over 30 computers on site. Mm-hmm. If there yeah. were five, there were many. So everybody didn't have a computer. Most things were paper-based. You had a calculator, a pen, piece of paper. That's how you did your numbers. So you really spent a lot of time, you know, in, in interacting with the process, touching the stills, moving valves, repairing equipment if, if it was down and when i started i was assisting in the production area right the fermentation and distillation okay and after about six months the guy who i was assisting he moved on and i guess i was sort of thrown in the deep end at that stage so i mean i, I wasn't bothered it was just more of an opportunity for me to learn more so the ability to operate the stills and assess rum and understand what was going on across from fermentation all the way through to, to barreling, that came very early on for me. So it's an opportunity that I look back on and I know I was quite fortunate to, to have been given that insight that early on. It, it, as I said, the passion grew over time, but very quickly because I just had to be involved in it. And it wasn't always easy. I mean, there are several nights I've spent at the distillery 
There was one time I remember distinctly. I worked 20, 24 full hours before I went to went back. back wow. home. Um, <laughs> because the nature of a still, at least the continuous stills, is, is quite like that. You're really, it's running the whole day. The whole They're continuous. Several months on end. And sometimes if there's a problem, some types of problems, you know, you have to stop to, you know, dig and find what's going on. Others, you have to let the still operate for you to see what's really going on and then make any adjustments or fine tuning. So mm-hmm. that period was quite something like that. Things were going on. We weren't quite sure. We had to make tweaks here. You had to make an adjustment. We pulled out a piece of equipment, reinstalled it. And when you're there doing it, you don't think of the time like, okay, I've been here eight hours. It, it's just going. And you see the sun rise and you say, oh, shoot, I haven't been. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's the type of environment it is. It's really quite something for anyone who, who's coming into it like that. You know, your eyes are going to open really wide. You're going to have a world of equipment to work with. And it's generally a lot of fun. The challenges are there, but, yeah, a lot of fun all the time. And it's also yeah. literally right on the beach, too. Like, um, yeah, the, that, the pictures I've seen of it are pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, I can, from my desk, once the gate to the beach is open, in less than a minute, I could be in the water. And that's wow. the <laughs> So, I mean, like, I had three, four, you guys work in yards, maybe 100 yards is, is to the beach. That's about it. Nice. Amazing. 100-yard yeah. beach dash. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the beach strip, the beach is a very long beach. It's a popular beach in, in Barbados. Um, it's called Brighton Beach, that entire stretch. And right next to the distillery is a section called the Hot Pot, that um, the water there is slightly warmer. And lots of people are there very early in the morning to have a quiet, warm sea bath. Some people are there at night. So there's people coming to the beach during the distillery. And yeah, when I came... Not that I had my eye on the beach, but it was okay. That's that's good to know. <laughs> that's the bonus. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, go for a swim. But you know what? It's not that easy to sort of drop everything and go for a swim in the middle. So, <laughs> still working out how to get into the water uh, without anyone noticing, but I'll, I'll get <laughs> Keep working on it. So, Don, I know you mentioned that there was no computers back when you started in, the, I guess it was the late 90s there. I was just curious, is is that the biggest difference between then and now? Or are there any other really big changes or differences between when you started back then and what it looks like as an operation now? Okay, yeah, the use of technology in that yeah. sense, um, managing the information. A distillery like this generates a lot of data, you know, especially if you want to keep up with the history and the trends. I mean, when I came here, as I said, charts of paper all over the place. Everything was paper-based. The idea of a, of a computer database was as foreign as maybe traveling to the next galaxy. Um, <laughs> but o- over time, that has changed substantially. As I said, you come into an office, everyone has a computer. Some of the stills, not all of the stills, but some of the stills are computerized now. You know, you have a PLC that's interfacing with the equipment and an operator at a computer so he can manipulate the plant without having to be in the plant. Um, other stills we have not adjusted in that sense, but the main thing is the information that is coming to us. We are now able to manage it a lot more efficiently. Yeah. Um, and sometimes just that process alone helps us to stay on top of any problems. You can do trend analysis. You can go back and say, well, this time last year, what was production like now? Is there something that we have to consider so it's, it's just more business efficient to have right. it like that. Structurally, a lot of changes. So, I mean, people who were here in the mid-90s, if they come now, 
they would recognize a few things, but a lot of things they would be like, wow, I, I didn't see that coming. You know, why is that there? They would probably tell me what used to be there, but a lot of changes have occurred, especially in the last five years. We've been making quite a few drastic changes here at the distillery. Right. And I was going to ask, has that kind of affected the scale of the operation and the staffing that you all have to support it? Yes. Um, staffing has had to grow. And it, it is only fair. I mean, like for me, when I came on board, as I said, I was assisting someone and the staff complement around us was, was very thin, like almost skeleton-like staff because yeah. everyone was very happy to just be, you know, tinkering and doing what they were what to do. But now we have a bit more of a varied staff complement, you know, people who are strong maybe in logistics, so people who are strong in QA, people who are strong in engineering, you still have the same operating base, a few more people who are strong on the chemistry side, you know, to help us with any research we're doing. So it's, it's far more of a complete body of staff now. And that's why I said there's a great team here. So I, I, I'm comfortable knowing I can go and, and do other duties and rest assured the job is being done very well because we know teamwork is the only way it can be done. You can't rely on one or two people necessarily to to be the only ones who know what, what to do. Right. And, and kind of go on top of that, with you being in the position you're in now, I imagine there's challenges. And you mentioned you were off of the island while there was things happening. What are some of the biggest challenges you, in your position now of overseeing an operation of the size and scale of Weird? Yeah, keep, keeping up with all of the moving parts can, can be a challenge. And that's why I'm really appreciative of, of the team with me. So if, if you look at the organizational structure of, of our company, yeah. three persons who, if you want to say, report to me and on the on this tree. So when I'm not here, I, I really have to rely on those three persons to keep me updated with certain key information. And, and, and it may be simply, okay, those persons now have to interface with a customer, with a vendor mm-hmm. or an agency, things that I might be doing when I'm here. Or there may be something going on in the still house that's not going right, and they have to interface with the, the operators who are manu- who are physically doing the work there in the plant, but they need some input on okay, what's really driving this this um, parameter, or what's really driving this condition that we're seeing. Um, it's easier now to do things remotely. I mean, I was in Europe over the last weeks, and you know, you can still do a video call. You can, I guess, the time difference is the bigger the biggest challenge, but you can still do a voice yeah. call very good quality. You're not really paying a, a high price to do a call over a, 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 a VOIP call, you know, voice over the, the, um, the IP. So right. WhatsApp can work. Our operators have a cell phone, you know, our plant operators, there's a cell phone. If I want to call, I can connect in. I can remote into some of the devices on the plant, mm-hmm. what's happening. So it's not all uh, a case where I'm disconnected totally from, from the from the process. I can really still rely on the people, but the technology also helps me to interface directly and, and keep everything, keep all of those balls being juggled. Yeah. It's can, a brave new world. Can make can make it a little harder to, to take a break sometimes though, right? Uh, oh, definitely. <laughs> I, I found that out during my week off, um, <laughs> as well, but it's like all of the information is still coming at you. You have to really put the telephone down and keep the laptop closed and, you're, you pick your moments that you want to, to ask people questions because <laughs> at a distillery like this, you shouldn't really ever break completely. When you come back, you're going to find out why you shouldn't have broken. <laughs> yeah. right. so much more to do. 
Um, by the way, one thing I meant to ask earlier, because this this comes up in conversation a lot, sometimes people refer to the distillery, they say West Indies, sometimes they say the full name, sometimes they say word, sometimes they say like weird, kind of. How, weird. How do you pronounce the, the abbreviation of the distillery? What do you refer to it as? <laughs> I, I actually don't know. As you were, I, was like, I was like, I was wondering, what do we say here? The staff, the staff I mean, most people here wouldn't say, word uh-huh. to themselves like if they're talking about the distillery they will say the plant or the distillery okay uh, people who are who are referring to us we would ask them to use w-i-r-d mm-hmm. or weird but it's weird, weird e. got uh, it word right. i guess has more of a w-o-r-d yeah but yeah right. we, we go we go with weird or we just say that cindy's rum or we say the distillery or the plant Okay. Well, it's it's good to know. I I probably obsess over that a little bit more than the average person, <laughs> just because I'm a, a writer in my day job. So I think about that a but, lot. Yeah. But, when, when it's written, it's easy to identify. W I R D. Exactly. I yeah. Something in the world that has <laughs> that as an abbreviation going for it. Um, and it used to be W I R R. It used to be right refinery. India rum mm-hmm. refinery. Um, but then I'd say just over 20 odd years ago, it became West Indies Rum Distillery. Right. Yeah. I remember the word refinery coming up a lot when we talked to Frank yes. Ward. A lot um, of the old information, if you look at it, you would see W-I-R-R. Well, um, transitioning a little bit to what you make and how you make it uh, at the <laughs> distillery. People are obviously probably familiar with uh, with the distillery as making the plantation rums that come from Barbados, but I know that's not the only thing that has come from there over the years. And I feel like I've seen lots of different kind of brand names thrown out associated with you guys. You know, there's, I've seen Cockspur, I've seen mm-hmm. uh, Malibu, I think I've seen uh, Blue Chair Bay and lots of stuff like that. So I don't know how many different products you're able to say are made there or, or not. Um, but can, can you give kind of an overview of maybe what you can share about the, the brands that come from there right now? Yeah, sure. I, I can try. Um, that's, that's not a straightforward question to answer because there are some products I obviously can't, can't speak about. They're really not... Mm-hmm products and that's really one of the characteristics of the distillery the the sort of business model that has been in place for a long time we've been known in barbados as a producer of high quality fine rum and it started out as that was being done for barbadian brand owners you know mm-hmm. who runs a rum shop or he's a merchant he has his own brand he's looking for somewhere to get rum from and we're the best place to get it from. Even the other distilleries in Barbados, at some part of their history, were getting their rum from, from here as well. So, you know, that model has not changed substantially and it's just grown from being a Barbados model to being a, a regional model. We do supply other distilleries in the Caribbean from time to time and internationally as well. If you guys want to have a Will & John rum, you know, you, you, you come to us, Someday. you can, you can say, well, this is the rum I, I'm looking to create. You know, we can go into our library and see how we can provide a match to you. Or you can say, well, you have a concept. You may have a, a similar rum somewhere else that you want to get close to. And we can mm-hmm. give that research ability, that, that facility that we can help you to create that blend. And right. then provide the bottles. It could be bottled here. Or we can just send you the, the liquid, the juice, and, and you take it from there. 
So yeah, that, that model has not changed. It has helped the distillery survive for a long time. We've been here since 1893. The, the converse to that is that obviously there's never really been a one brand that has like stood out or has been always associated with the distillery. Right. You mentioned plantation, you mentioned Cotspur, you mentioned Malibu. We're the home of plantation rum, Barbados plantation rum. I mean, all of that comes from here, yes. Cotspur mm-hmm. was, I guess, the one that had the longest affiliation with the distillery because we were part of a larger conglomerate and that brand was part of that group. So it was only natural for us to, to be the base of that rum. We did all of the aging here, all of the production, all of the bottling was done here at West Indies Rum and then distributed to the markets around the world. So Cotspur is no longer the brand of the distillery as such. It's plantation rum, but you also then have what we, we, we made a decision. We need a brand that the distillery knows, the staff is very proud of, and it was developed, created, formulated early in Barbados and we did that recently we launched a brand this year called Stage Rum right and that was basically paying homage to the founder of the distillery George Stade he founded the distillery in 1893 so over the years whenever you saw a, brand, a rum brand from Barbados and it says Stage Rum or Major Stage Rum or Stage mm-hmm. whatever you knew it was rum coming from West Indies Rum Distillery so now for the very first time, there is a unique brand that is Stades, as opposed to just on a little strip at the bottom saying made with Stades rum. The name Stades is very prominent on that label. The staff are extremely proud of it. We, we think it, it's going to do great things. Um, you know, it's very small a portfolio right now, but we have great plans to expand that recently. Everyone is very uh, eager to see what the next expression is that we, we released that's um, from Stades. So that, that's where we're at now in terms of what the distillery has produced over time. Uh, it, it's hard to say because, as I said, some of them we can't review, but that creates a problem in its own sense because there are oftentimes people see a brand appear somewhere and it may say Barbados rum and it's like, where did that come from? Exactly. And yeah. People look towards us and we're like, no, no, hands up. We've got enough to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we didn't do that one. So whenever we... We have that type of relationship um, with a person who, with what we call a contract um, supply or contract bottling arrangement. You know, it's all, we're always very careful to say, well, okay, you have to be transparent if it is a rum that is mixed with other rums. I mean, you know, you know what to do. You can't, and if it's not a rum, please don't call it a rum because the distillery's name can be, can be put in a compromising position from time to time. And mm-hmm. we we don't want to do that. We like to be very transparent in everything we do. So we ask our customers to be equally as, as transparent as possible. But the names you call, they're Malibu, Cotspur, Plantation, um, Stays. I think you mentioned Blue Chair Bay. Um, that was one, that's probably over 10 years ago around that time. Um, quite a while back. I mm. Kenny, Kenny Chesney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm here in Nashville. You know, I, I, so, I remember so. well how, how that came about. There are a lot of other local and regional brands that we supply for as well. And sometimes when we are supplying rum to a customer, we may not know the brand that it would go in. I mean, right. yes, the customer would would tell us, but we don't make a demand that we know precisely all of the details for the supply of the rum that we send to, to customers. So I hope yeah. that 
clears the, the question for you. Um, yeah, no, it does, and and we're gonna we're gonna circle back around to states a bit later because I know a lot of people are that that's that's a big deal that that the distillery yeah. is doing that, and uh, I know lots of people are interested in it. So we'll circle back to that, but I think we're <laughs> we're gonna dig in a little bit more into production and historical um, geeky stuff first. I think no problem. Yeah, actually, what I wanted to ask about a little bit, and you, you mentioned it with Stades being uh, back in the late 19th century, that that's kind of the origin of the distillery. And I know that you have a lot of that history documented on site still. So I, I guess I have this mental picture of you like like rolling up parchments of like things that are 100 years old and reading them <laughs> and like gleaning this knowledge of whatever you can. Um, let, let me mentally reset that for you. Yes. <laughs> There, there are there are parchments if you want to call them that. Some very old books have to be handled with with very great care. Um, we've actually had to employ people from the Barbados Museum and the, the Barbados Archive um, Institute to help us to to navigate through these documents very carefully. Wow! And there is a fit. I mean, when we tell people there's a vault, people are like, "Yeah, that sounds very marketing and fancy," but there is a literal vault. <laughs> information is stored and if you when you go buy it it's that old style um combination with the handle like spin to spin a wheel to open the door you know it's a quarter turn handle but it's like the pins come up the side of the door the same way the door itself is about nine inches thick with steel and that's in a a wall that has coral stone that is over a foot thick so is locked. I mean, that's locked down solid. And there are not many people at the distillery who know the combination um, of that. So we we have a, and even on the inside of that vault door, there's a steel bar door that only one person keeps the key to it because we recognize how valuable those records are. So a lot of things were put into that place, um, not knowing what use they will be or when we will need them, but at least they were safe. The person who's really been sinking his teeth into that is our GM, Andrew Hassel. He, we call him now the historian at the distillery. And I, I don't know many people who know now as, as much about um, rum history in Barbados, at least, as, as Andrew. He spends a long time, you know, going through each page very carefully because he doesn't want then so many people handling and, you know, we tear a page here, something goes missing, but he shares everything that he discovers there. Yeah. And there's a lot of information, really cool stuff to, to go through. Uh, we see it as something not really just belong to the distillery, but it's really part of the whole Barbados rum, rum history, the rum journey. And we, we will be sure that, you know, anything that comes up that has to be shared with, with more than just the distillery staff, with the Barbadian community or even the world community at large, the rum community, we will, we will readily share. But it, it is something that I would say when you come to Barbados, you understand we don't necessarily throw away many things. Uh, it was a good time we didn't throw away many things. All those papers, some of the charts from how the stills operated, some of the techniques, the minute books from, from when the distillery meetings with the board were being held, the original share register of the distillery even, all of that information is stored in the vault. Was there anything that you or Andrew, like, did Andrew come to you running one day and say, Don, Don, look at this. Look what I found in the, in the records. Anything you recall? Yeah, that was, there, uh, there's, there's generally an email come in maybe once or twice a week that have <laughs> some estimation marks on it. And, and this big red or bull print because that's that's how Andrew would run and tell me. There's like an email will come up quickly. Guys, believe, can you believe the check? Check out this note. 
can you believe this is what they were doing then? That sounds so cool. One of the, one of the key things we we go through a lot of is like some of the older drawings um, because there's a lot of stills that I guess were conceptualized and they were never actually built. Oh, wow. Oh. So one Prototypes. of the we are, we are looking at is once I guess space and time and money allows to, to, to really look at resurrecting some of those concepts as opposed yeah. to we're only refurbishing an older still. It's going to be a new still built, but it will have a design from whenever the 1930s or even prior to that way, you know, people were thinking, do we, do we design a still or do we buy a still? And sometimes if the decision was to buy a still, the old design never really went anywhere, but mm. it's still lots of opportunity for us to, and we are still going through, it's not a, a, a finished deal. We are still going through and Andrew, especially still going through a lot of that information. So, so one of the topics you know I was most interested to talk to you about is this kind of array of stills that you have there. Um, there's pot stills, there's column stills, there's some very rare stills, decommissioned stills that have kind of legendary reputations. Um, we probably can't talk about all of them, but I do want to at least highlight a few. And I thought a, a good place to start might be with one that I've heard you call your favorite still of them all before, which is the John Doerr 77 column still uh, that I think was installed in 1975. So I wanted to ask specifically of all the stills we're going to talk about, why is that one in particular your favorite and what's what's so special about it? Yeah, um, you're quite right in terms of that point. It is my favorite still here at the distillery. To operate, yes, and I, I particularly like the product that comes from it in two-column two mode. And it was installed in 1975. It's a John Doerr design. I've done a few, I guess you call them master classes before. So I, I did say to people, it was renamed the Franklin still. And that's oh. a homage to uh, one of the workers who I found when I came to the distillery. He, he was working here from in the 70s. And he wasn't always an, an operator, but he was very dedicated. You know, you were putting the extra time, whatever needed to be done on the plant. You know, if he was the guy who was in fermentation and something was needed by the engineers, he will also go and try to do that as well. So he was really dedicated and um, bless his soul. He, he died on the way home from work one, one morning. Oh. Um, unfortunate situation, but he's the sort of guy that gave his all to the distillery. And he said, you know what? That was the still he loved to run. Whenever we operated it, he always wanted to take command of it. You know, he, he would become the one of the managers of the plant. He would leave his shift and still be calling to check on, okay, guys, is it going well? Because he he wanted it to be perfect, the product from that. So we we asked his family permission and they granted the permission for us to rename the still in his name. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. But for us, it's called the number 77. That's the still license number that it would have received from the, the government of Barbados. And it the reason I love it, as I said, is very... I'm that technical person. I love to get my hands into things. And that's the one where you've got to spend your time in between the columns, going up and down the stairs, tinkering with the charts, maybe adjusting a valve here, applying a bit more steam, adjusting the flow rate. It, it, there's no computer running it. And you do get a, quite a, a good workout from going to the top. <laughs> <laughs> the product so is fantastic in two-column mode, but we can run it in several modes. Um, it's a very versatile still. It doesn't take much to, to switch modes. You do have to stop 
in some cases, but I, we could be running in two column mode in the morning, make a switch by early afternoon, we're in three column mode. Uh, you might take a longer time to get it to four because there's a bit more tinkering to do. Then we can bring it back and say, let's run it in single column mode. It is wonderfully versatile. Product, as I said, is fantastic. It gets you busy. It gets you really feeling the, the still heart operates. You know, you can, the vibrations or the noise. It's not a noisy place of distillery, but you do discover the, the noises that come when the plant is down. It is eerily quiet when there's nothing happening. But for you coming into the distillery, you may not think it's like heavy machinery running, but there's a particular sound and feel mm. to the when it's working. And with that one, you can pick up the rhythm quite easily. You know, you hear out of the steam flowing through the pipes or... You know, there's this liquid flowing. You can see the smell. Everything is there. The senses are all aroused when that still is running, and you're quite busy at it. So that, I I feel very satisfied when I leave the when I leave the plant when that one is working. So that that's really why it's my favorite. But the product from it is wonderful. I mean, very balanced. It's not a it's not a very heavy pot still type of rum, but it isn't neutral either. It's it's just smack in the middle. It ages wonderfully well on its own, and then it can be used with either more neutral product or it can even be used with heavier product to rebalance it. So, I, I mean, I could talk for, for a long time. On. <laughs> no, I, we uh, don't run it as often as before. Okay. It's older, you know, it's, it's a bit more, I guess you got a, a, a bit more love and care you have to give it. Uh, starts up and it may leak a bit more than before. But yeah, I, I say if I had to pick one still to at rest in drum to take with me, that would be the one. And, and this may be getting into information you can't reveal, but I'm I'm interested to know if there are any widely available products on the market right now that you feel like if you have, you know, a bottle of this rum, you can really taste the influence from that still in it. Is there something like that out there right now? Not not as old, but I tell you what, any product that has come out of the distillery in the last twenty years for sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. in that product from that still. So and that's, it, how, that's how often it's it's incorporated into blends and stuff is, like that. It is, it is central to a lot of the, the products we do for the distillery brands, I would say, for, for say like Cotspur at the time, plantation rum, stage rum. So it's not something we would have sent to say, um, let's pick on one, let's say Malibu, for right. instance. Mm-hmm. And I have no problem just to put that out there with, being the supplier of Malibu, I, I know there's a need for that type of rum or that type of product, really mm-hmm. not rum, but the rum base for it, we supply. Right. And trust me, there's as much care and attention going into us manufacturing that type of quality as there is, say, the product from the 77 still, the Franklin still. Mm-hmm. It, it is not easy to to operate any of the column stills. It's not just a one switch that you turn on and it, everything runs well. There's a lot of cross flows, a lot of um, parameters that need to be attended to. So the operators, when they leave work, are very satisfied if they've done a good job. So for them to hear, uh, you know, that type of spirit isn't really well thought of, they're like, excuse me, I, I did <laughs> my butt off today. I did a fantastic job. I thought I I, I think I got the still to work well. So we, we encourage our staff to to do the job well, they all love it. Um, one of the perks, I guess, if you see it that way, is to be able to assess rums. They, they start to understand nuances between the pop still, the Franklin, our larger unit, which is called the number 79, the Vulcan, now the mm-hmm. hot They're just enjoying that variety of equipment, 
the different impact on the nose, how the fermentation style impacts the quality, how making a different cut on the pot still or the Vulcan changes the character, but equally making a change on the column still with the draw or flow rate can also impact on quality. So they all are, are valuable in, the, in, the, in their own right. Um, but yeah, the 77 still, I would say if you stage and plantation five year, okay, and you can sense the impact there. But I think if you smell the product on its own and after it's been aged, you would probably be more able to recognize the characteristics if you pick up a product. So me that, I mean, you, you need to be here and, and maybe assess it first. And then you can, when you leave and you know a product is from West Indies realm, you can try to see if you can detect if that is in that product. It's a, it's on us now to come down there and uh, yeah. and then see it in person. Yeah, like bring, that. bring the family, bring your friends. Um, hey, Barbados is open. Don't mind the curfew. Hopefully that's a, a temp. <laughs> You can enjoy the beach at a distillery, wonderful food, uh, you know, and I, I mean, fair play to all of the distilleries in Barbados. I never tell people come to Barbados and visit one place. Go, right. go and see the distillery in the north, the one in the east, come to us, just have a, a great time on the island. So I, I also want to ask you about uh, the Rockley still, because that's one that I think has been of particular interest to kind of hardcore rum fans for, for a while now, thanks to, uh, the, you know, there's been several releases from independent bottlers over the years coming out featuring what's described as Rockley still or Rockley style rums, but there's been this kind of confusion and debate over how that Rockley rum was made. And part of the reason it's of interest is because it's supposed to have, you know, quite a distinct flavor profile from what people typically associate with Barbados and West Indies. So uh, basically, like, there's a few theories of where these Rockley rums came from. I think one would be that they came from the Rockley still itself, the one that you still have. Um, but there's there's also a, a bit of contention with that because some of the releases came out or they were distilled in years when that still was supposed to be decommissioned. So there's this other theory that perhaps some of the other stills at West Indies were used in kind of a particular configuration to approximate the original Rockley still itself. So I'm curious if, if you've looked into any of that, if, if you know, if you have your own theory about those rums, um, or if you have any interest of trying to sort of bring that style of rum back to life. Yeah, well, interesting that you asked that question at this stage. Um, so what, what we would think and what we commonly say is the, the Rocky still has been removed, well, it was here at the distillery for a long time on the lawn, decommissioned, mm-hmm. and decision to, if you want to say, recommission it. Ah, uh, nice. To have an assessment done in terms of whether it was or is still suitable for making rum, either the material of construction, um, for because back then you know there were certain chem- compounds being used. It, but other things could contain lead or arsenic, and you have to be very, uh, these are not leaching in to the spirit you made. Right. So we've done that assessment of some of the compounds that were used to seal around the rivets and around the seams, and so far, so good on that front. We've also done an assessment on the thickness of the metal. Uh, it's all copper, and the thinnest area is about four mil, which is satisfactory. And there's even a section that's about nearly a centimeter thick. So structurally, it seems sound and safe. 
And now we are trying to get it reconditioned to work again. Now, what would be like a missing link would be what configuration of NAC and partial condensers or full condensers that we use. We are still in that phase of, okay, let's work out how to get precisely or as close as possible to what it was originally. And because those things do impact on the, the quality of the product that you're going to, to finally get. Your, your operation characteristics, your molasses, your yeah. fermentation, but also the design of the net, the rate of cooling, whether it's first partial condensation that's leading to a reflux, is it full condensation only? So quite a few things we are trying to work on. So we can't say for sure we will replicate that particular style, but we are very curious to see what the still will produce when it operates again. Time frame, Will and John, it's a tough one. And <laughs> it, those, these things can take a, a time. I, I'd say if you check me back, if you do another call like this in a year's time, maybe we'll have something going from it already. But it oh, has wow. yeah. returned to Barbados. So it's still a long process. We're in the very early stages. The assessments are good. Now it has to be sort of refurbished. We get all of the other aspects of it designed. And then it will be shipped back to Barbados to be reassembled. Then we will fire it up. Obviously, the fire up is still like that. You go very slowly. You, you do a series of trials first, maybe just on water to do a steam trial. You're assessing for leaks, integrity. Mm -hmm. Then consider maybe we'll apply some wash and see what type of first distillation we get, You know what strength would we get from wash strength, maybe at 4%, take the wash strength up to 8%. You know, where, where do the, what time do the compounds come off at? What, what volatiles are coming off first for how long that's going to depend on, you know, the rate of steam application, the size of the coil that we put in. So there's several things going on at the moment that are hopefully going to all fall into place within a year's time. And we'll see if we can produce that rocky style again. Now, in terms of that second theory, if what was done at West Indies run was an attempt to replicate that. I'd have to say it wasn't done in my time. Mm -hmm. it was, it was done prior to me being here. Um, if we have replicated it along the way, it was not by design, put it that way. We, we weren't doing an active project to say, let's see if we can adjust between the Vulcan, the Greg, mm -hmm. and everything else to reproduce that style. So that part of, of the theory, I'm not, Sure, I'm sure about that's really a hypothesis I, I could support, but certainly it wasn't done at West Indies Run. Gotcha. So mm -hmm. so basically the next step is you're 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 refurbishing the still, uh the actual Rockley still, and then you'll kind of begin testing to see just a baseline what the rums that come off of it taste like and then kind of adjust from there depending on what you think its best use is. Right. And and there's no that's not a uh, a there's no time on it. As I said, right. the, the initial assessments, they're all good so far. We are taking the next step slowly now because if at any stage the company charge if assisting us getting it back to working conditions, say, well, guys, I, I think you've got to really reconsider this project because of A, B, or C, we'll understand. It, it can then maybe become a, a museum piece, you know, mm -hmm. it's a, you can build a replica of it. So there's no push or real hard deadlines to achieve. We're just going to take it as it comes. But if it can run again and it does produce um, product, we're going to have some fun with it. Trust me, we will, we will take it through its paces one more time. <laughs> so moving into a, maybe a different part of the process for you in the manufacturing, a recent rumor 
has it that you are using seawater on some of your ferments. Um, can you speak a little bit more in detail on whether that's actually occurring? And if so, what are the end products uh, that, that have that as part of the process? Yeah, um, so don't let me make that any more um, <laughs> elaborate than it really is. We, we are not producing products with that at the moment, but in terms of what you see on the shelf, let me put it that way. Okay. The distillery, you, you definitely could experience what production we've done from that seawater fermentation and it is not an exclusive seawater fermentation we, we don't take a, a, a vessel or a fermenter and only put seawater in it, it <laughs> um, a small that would not work just let me put it out there yeah um, seawater is too valuable otherwise i mean the fish need it we need to swim in it etc but the, the main thing is you're you're thinking about conditioning the environment within which the yeast operates you're stressing the yeast enough that the, what it produces, and just so I can shift back a bit, fermentation with yeast is really about yeast is in metabolizing sugar, you know, ethanol being one of the end products, but there are a whole range of organic compounds, you know, aldehydes, ketones, esters, etc. The yeah. different pathways the yeast is using, um, you can interrupt some of those pathways, you can you can create the environment to extend and create another product. There are precursors that you need for when it goes into still into the still. The seawater is just there in enough quantities to condition that environment enough that we can start to manipulate what product is there at the end of fermentation. Gotcha. Now, yeah, I was a little skeptical as myself, you know, but like anyone else, I'm willing to give it a good try. And definitely the product varies enough that you can you can distinctly tell the fermenter that had the distillate from that one that had the seawater in it versus yeah. the that doesn't. Wow. Um, how, how it is going to be incorporated fully, that's now more, I guess, for the marketing team and some of the other product development to, to take place. But from a strictly production standpoint, I was quite pleased along with the rest of the team at what we could do with it. We now have to see how we can scale it up to be able to say, well, okay, this is an ongoing, ongoing production methodology and it's going to go into this product stream or we're going to use it in this proportion in this product. So that's the stage we're at. But yeah, it is real. It happens. We've huh. done it. And it, 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 it has yielded good results. Excellent. Well, I, I know we, we don't have all day with you, so I, I want to um, get in a few more questions before you have to run. And I definitely don't don't want to let you go without talking about Stades Rum first, uh, because as you mentioned, you know, that was kind of a, a big deal for the distillery, something that you kind of said, you know, a chance for the staff, the people who work there to have something that's kind of all created there that they can be really proud of producing and kind of part of that larger trend we're seeing now across the Caribbean of distilleries that historically focused on selling bulk rum to supply other people's brands, being able to capture more of the value of the product. So I, I wanted to ask, you know, what pushed the distillery to do that? And how did you develop those two initial rums for release, which I believe are, there's the beach fat number one, which is a, a white rum, and then bond number eight, which is sort of a blended aged rum. So as you were kind of conceptualizing every everything, how did you decide on those two products uh, with, with all of the different stills and methods of production that you have available to you there? Yeah, I, I know we, as I said, time, as you said, time is a little short on us. So I, I won't give you the full history of George State, but 
he was the guy, a German guy who founded the distillery in 1893. And very shortly after that, he, he invited his brother along. A really, from all of our information, almost like a genius, a guy with a lot of patents. And he came to the Caribbean and, and specifically to Barbados with the intention of demonstrating, listen, there's, there's technology out there. There are new ways of doing some of the older things that you're doing. I can make rum via this wonderful method. He had it analyzed and rubber stamped or confirmed as excellent quality by the local laboratories and the chemists here at the time in Barbados. And very quickly, I think the people he was trying to convince that, you know, I can make rum by a column still and make superior quality to what your existing rums are, were quite like, okay, you know what? That's, it's going to save us the trouble of production. Mm. Quality is excellent. So we can now focus on packaging and marketing and selling and you can worry about the production, all of that, uh, engineering stuff, boilers or steam, or is it fire you're using, how, how to cool, how to ferment, you know, you take care of that headache because distilling now is not easy. As I said, I, can, I can't imagine what it was like um, in 1893. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a, it's a hazardous job um, because of the nature of the alcohol and any open flame you're prone to having fires and explosions. So, you know, I, I can only imagine back then there was a high risk in how you created the heat that was necessary to distill and make sure everything was made safe. So he came along at the right time, I believe, to, to help the local merchants move away from what may have been an unsafe practice for some of them and one that they may not have enjoyed doing. And he loved that type of thing. So when we came to form a brand for the distillery, that was one of the first ideas to come to us. Why not call it Stage Rum? You know, it, it is just a natural fit. It's the distillery was founded by George Stade. Most brands coming out of here or that was associated with, with Barbados and West Indies Rum would have had Stage Rum, made with Stage Rum. So let's give it its, its prominence now. In terms of making a decision why, why we would go with the beach flat and the bond number eight, those, as I said, are, are the, the sort of simple start, and that's not going to be the end. So white rum is a popular rum in Barbados, and the beach vat number one it is basically rested in a very large vat that's sitting right next on the beach or in view of the beach. It's not on the sand per se, but <laughs> right. if you're standing looking over into the vat, you can raise your gaze and the sea is right there. So that's why we call it beach vat, and the rum is really rested in there. So it has a small amount of, of connection with the wood, not a long time, not enough to impart any, any color or major flavor characteristics. And we think it's a very mellow white rum. can do well on the market if you like making cocktails. Um, you know, you're out there with your friends in a rum shop. You just want to have something that's very smooth, very easy to drink. And it's true style white rum of Barbados, you know, a, a mixture of column and pot. George did was one of those people when he pioneered the, the column still in Barbados, he did not go away necessarily from the pot still. So you did have here at West Indies Rum was that opportunity to now mix column still and pot still, which is one of the features of most Barbadian rums you find. Um, there's a blending process going on and we can capture the, the heaviness, the body of the pot with sort of the slightly lighter notes of the column still, marry them together and you really get a medium body balance rum 
you know, vanilla characteristics. After it's aged in the barrel, you get more of that coconut note. Um, sometimes it's about chocolate note if you leave it more fusel. So that style around we thought was true to the heritage of George Stade. The bond number eight has more of an age characteristic to it. And that was just to say, well, okay, we're going to pair the white rum with an aged rum as well. It has the characteristics that you would expect a typical Barbadian rum would have. And we think it's going to do quite well as well. Um, people are looking at it now and thinking, you know what? Rum ain't that bad after all. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We agree. Of course, but there, there is a pride the distillery staff have with it. And we want them to really feel proud that they can go up there and say there's a fully represents the distillery from the time it was founded in 1893. And that's the name we're going to carry forward uh, well into the future. Oh, one one more note about the the bond number eight before before we wrap up. Uh, I wanted to, I wanted to ask because I noticed when the Facebook announcement came up about the brand um, that the the aged release has a small amount six grams per liter of dosage, which is kind of a a barrel aged combination of sugar and spirit of some sort. Um, and I don't, I don't bring it up to get into a you know debate about sweetening rum right now, but it was interesting to me because I always associated that practice with the plantation brand as kind of going hand in hand with you know the secondary maturation in cognac casks, aging in in France as well as at origin. Um, it's kind of like a signature for that brand. Uh, but you know, on the other hand, Stades is now this purely West Indies brand distilled and bottled in Barbados. So. Um, my assumption was that there isn't a history of that same approach to dosage at the distillery itself. Uh, so, so what kind of led you to go in that direction with it? Well, yeah. So it's not the, the quite the dosage that, as you mentioned, is done there in, in France with an a aged, a aged um, sugar and alcohol combination, aged in a barrel. We, we do... We are, let's, let's put it this way. We did several blends of that before we decided how to present it. And the one that had that small amount of sugar in it, um, and the sugar is, is not sugar you buy on the store shelf or anywhere. It's, it's actually sugar directly from the from the sugar mill here in Barbados. Um, say like raw, unrefined sugar. Got it. Mm-hmm. Was basically used in the blend in the testing phase. And it had the best reviews across our staff and the other parties that we introduced to it at that stage. So we said, you know what, um, if that's the one that's done the best, let's make that the blend. Now, other expressions of states, and you can see there for the white, may not have that in because right. still want this to be a product that people enjoy as much as they respect the name state and it's a, a brand from the West Indies Rum Distillery. When they consume it, it is something they want to come back and, and have more of. So that was just a decision taken based on how that did in product development but other expressions may not have that in as well so we're not saying everything will have in that small amount of sugar but for this one that's the one we felt would have done the best and hopefully people do enjoy it even though they may have a a personal view on sugar and rum that's okay if you taste it and you enjoy it you know feel free to to give it a good mention or even to, to allow your friends to share it as well Got it. Well, yeah. uh, Don, Don, I, I want to say thanks for taking the time to be here. I know you mentioned right before we got on the call, there's still 
um, a curfew in Barbados. And so, you know, you don't have all day to sit around talking to us. You got to get some errands done and that sort of thing. So we really appreciate you sitting down. Before you do go, however, we do have a tradition here on the Rumcast that fortunately doesn't take that much time if you still have a couple of minutes left. But <laughs> basically, it's a what we call the rapid fire segment where my co-host, John Gulla asks a series of uh, very fun uh, occasionally fun, occasionally interesting, always occasionally uh, silly, occasionally yeah. <laughs> silly questions uh, that 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 we like for our guests to answer as quickly as possible, and we put sixty seconds on the timer and see how many you can get through. So, if you are up for that, uh, we'll we'll shift over into that now. Yeah, sure. Just a few questions there on that before you go. Is it like a yes, no, pass, maybe type thing, or, or do I have to give like a? So a minute is not a long time, so. I'm, I'm thinking my answers can't be that long. Exactly right. You you hit it on the head there, Don. It's it's a short as possible answer. I mean, it can be yes or no, but if you uh, feel more creative in in your short answer response, that's that's fine too. Okay, so that's, it's really that, that's up to cool, you. Man. I, I can give that a go. No problem. I don't I don't want to be left out of a tradition. <laughs> excellent, <laughs> excellent. Um, all right. Well, I have sixty seconds on the clock. So, John, whenever you're ready, go. All right. Neat or on the rocks. Neat. All right. Column, pot, or blend? Blend. Okay. Aged or unaged rum? Aged. And molasses or cane juice rum? Molasses. Those were all pretty predictable. I figured you were going to go with those. <laughs> we start, uh, okay. start you out easy. <laughs> we just get, we're getting the wheels going here. Uh, all right. Gotcha. I'm, I'm not sure if it's well known, but you are also a well-regarded athlete there in Barbados. If you had to choose one sport, do you choose squash or road tennis? Oh, I, no, back up a bit. Let's put a pause on the timer. A lot right. <laughs> in Barbados. I'm not sure where that came from. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I heard it mentioned in a previous interview yes. that you are a, a so squash. Too. Yes, I'm better at. I think I'm better at squash. But road tennis is, is a national sport. It was invented in Barbados, so I'm sort of torn between the two. But if it's me personally, yes, squash. I, I'm a I'm a more avid squash player than I am a road tennis. But I am the road tennis champion at West Indies. Run. Oh, there we go, road tennis champion. I nice. like it. All right, awesome. resume All right, timer. Oh yeah, yes. the distillery. <laughs> <laughs> at the distillery only. I gotcha, I gotcha. All right, time is resuming. Who would you choose as your squash partner for doubles? Would it be somebody Maggie Campbell, Trudy Ann Branker, maybe Justin Corbin from St. Nicholas Abbey, or someone else? I'll, I'll keep it simple, Trudy Ann. All right. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> we'll I have to her. find out if she can play first, though. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, we'll let her know when we talk to her. Do you ever affectionately refer to anyone who currently works as an operator at the Weird Plant as a weirdo? <laughs> Whoa, no. Um, no. <laughs> I don't think I'll try that either. Uh, <laughs> no, it's probably is the right answer. I will get there. a weird look coming back at me. <laughs> That's time. All right, all right. We, all right. we didn't get to them all, but you did great. No, man, Don, listen, I, I talked too long on a few of them, so yes, <laughs> so that you can compensate. Like like any great, great uh, competitor, you bent the rules a little bit. So that's... <laughs> yeah, that's, I know. That, that's, uh, that, that's what a great competitor does, and uh, we uh-huh. appreciate it. So... No problem. Um, awesome. Thank well, thank, so thanks again, Don. And uh, anything else to, uh, to to share or that you wanted people to know that we didn't get to before we go? Well, yeah. I mean, as I said, mainly to come to Barbados when you get a chance. We, we welcome you with open arms. We, we love to have visitors besides it being for tourism. We just love to tell people about our country and our culture. So come on down, experience West Indies rum, all of the distilleries, the whole thing, the beaches, the 
the nightlife, when there's that going again, you know, the food. You just have a, a wonderful time. The people are the best resource in Barbados. They're very friendly, happy to help. So come back and we'd be happy for you to drink some of our rum here in Barbados and not just buying it wherever you are. Yeah. I heard that uh, WIRD actually also stands for What an Incredible Rum Destination. So, <laughs> yeah, I like that. And I would totally agree with you. John's, John's <laughs> trying to get a job with the Barbados Tourism Board, I think. So he's just throwing oh, all man. these ideas out there. Charge, right? he, might have to, he might be working here soon. <laughs> uh, oh, thank you, Don. Okay, thank you, Will. Thank you, John. Had a great time. And, you know, and, and obviously, if people want to know more, just give me a call. I'm not a social media person a lot, but I'll always appreciate a phone call, a Zoom call, an email. That type of thing works for me. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of The Rumcast. We hope you enjoyed this interview with Don Ben. I'm going to throw several links to you know, various articles that mention some of the stuff we talked about. I know we got into stills and a little bit of rum history and that sort of thing. And there's some useful articles for learn for getting up to speed on some of that stuff like the rockley still so i'll i'll throw some links into that into the show notes and uh as always we'd love to hear what is in your glass what you've been thinking about lately what questions are on your mind who you'd like to hear from more on this show so always feel free to drop us a line at host at rumcast.com that's h-o-s-t at rumcast.com or you can find us on social media john where where can they find us out there we are on Instagram at The Rumcast. We are also on Facebook at The Rumcast. And our Twitter game is improving, Will. So we're, we're wow. definitely uh, moving into the Twitter realm. Uh, and don't forget, we're now on YouTube as well. In fact, Will, we've been kicking around the idea of maybe adding some video to that Ooh. audio at some point. Yeah, maybe. Uh, so uh, keep that in. And if you haven't already looked us up on YouTube, maybe uh, give us a subscribe over there and get us going. Kick us in the butt a little bit and tell us, hey, we want to see your faces on there in, in addition uh, to, to, the, to the fabulous audio content. Uh, so in all seriousness, uh, we, we really appreciate you all listening to us. And thank you so much for, for doing so and, and letting us know what you're finding uh, that you love about the program through social media in any way, program. shape, or form that you want to use it. Yes. Uh, we'll see you next time. And we hope you enjoyed this latest installment of the program. <laughs> <laughs>